Well, good morning. Most of what we have been talking about for the past eight weeks or so has been rather non-controversial. And although some of the maybe nuances and so forth of the historical um, sort of analysis or how we kind of arrived at some of these doctrines, probably not at all novel to you, some of those uh, intricacies may have been, but by and large, we've just kind of stayed within the, the bounds of just common orthodoxy, kind of explored some of those sorts of things. What we want to do this morning, though, is going to be a little bit different because we're going to dive into a topic that is uh, much more uh, controversial. It is the first topic that we've really examined that if you were to drive along Virginia and the 10 or so churches that kind of line Virginia Parkway throughout uh, McKinney, uh, that very well, the vast majority of them might disagree with us. And so even some of you uh, might not land exactly where we're going to land uh, this morning, and that's okay. This is a, a really difficult uh, topic. It's a topic that has been discussed and, uh, and debated and so forth for years, but what we want to do this morning is just kind of lay out what the text says and allow us to feel the weight of uh, the text. And, uh, and so let me just give you a couple of opening encouragements as we go along. For, first off, so what we're going to talk about this morning is going to push us, it's going to grate against a lot of our innate sense of right and wrong, our innate sense of how God should act, how God should do whatever it is that God does. And so, just want to encourage us, first off, just to recognize how many times in life you have recognized that your innate senses and feelings about how God should act are in conflict with God's Word. So, we see that throughout the Scriptures, that what we think is oftentimes not true. And so, as we come up and as you begin to feel maybe some of the wrestle in the text this morning just to encourage you to process your own heart, to reflect upon the fact that oftentimes our, uh, our feelings and so forth are uh, quite wrong. And then secondly, just to approach this text with what I'll call hermeneutical humility. Uh, approach the text with a sense of, God, speak to me. I, I, whether I have been through seminary before I've been a Christian for 60 years, I've read the Bible 500 times, whatever it might be, to recognize there are still depths here that I haven't explored. And so, Lord, would you speak to me this morning? Would you help me to understand uh, what's going on? And then to really approach the text with these two uh, ideas. One, that Scripture is true and God is good. And if ever I can't make sense of those two things, if, if ever those two things seem inconsistent or in contradiction, the problem lies solely in us, not in God and not in His uh, Word. And then lastly, just take your time. This is a topic, again, that, that is difficult and it often takes time, uh, takes people years to reflect upon. And, uh, and so, with that in mind, what we're talking about is mercy. Now, mercy doesn't seem all that controversial in and of itself, all right? Everyone loves mercy. We sing about it. We pray about it and so forth. But when we really dig down to the concept of mercy, it actually is a somewhat complex topic. Why? Because of the fact that uh, we're going to explore who receives it. Who receives mercy and on what basis? Why do they receive it? 
So why doesn't everybody, if mercy is, according to kind of the common description, mercy is not getting what you deserve, then why doesn't everybody get uh, mercy? And so in order to answer that question, we're going to talk about a few scary words. I wrote some scary words here, but I wrote them in green and, and red, so they're Christmas colors. They wouldn't look quite so scary. We're going to talk about words like election and predestination, foreknowledge, foreordination, and then kind of what does sovereignty means as it relates to all of these. Everybody um, throughout history who has been a Christian would say they agree with these words. The question is, what do these words actually mean? And, uh, and so that's what we want to explore uh, on, uh, in our time this morning. So traditionally, you have two approaches to the subject. Throughout, uh, throughout church history, you have two different ways to approach. What do we mean when we use a word like election or predestination? What do we mean by sovereignty, especially as it relates to the topic of salvation? And you have kind of two theological uh, camps that people will fall into. And, uh, and they're named after kind of the leading theologians that systematized these two different ways of thinking. So they didn't come up with these ideas the ideas existed before them. There were debates well before these two gentlemen, but they were the, the kind of the guys that uh, systematized it and just sort of the name kind of descended down from them. On one hand, you have a guy named John Calvin, and on the other hand, <clears throat> you have a guy named Jacob Arminius. And so from these two uh, people, you have a, a system of thinking called Calvinism, and you have a system of thinking called Arminianism. At the end of the day, I could care less if you call yourself a Calvinist. I care that you are a Biblicist. I don't care anything about that particular label, that particular term, and so forth. It just so happens uh, that we as a church agree more with how Calvin viewed God's salvation than how uh, Arminius viewed salvation. So you have Calvin on one hand, you have Arminius on the other hand. And throughout history, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of influential leaders on both sides of this equation. And so if you look at famous Arminians, uh, you have John and Charles Wesley. So John Wesley, the, the founder of uh, the, the Methodist denomination, you have Charles Wesley who wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of our historical hymns that we sing. Uh, you have them. You have Billy Graham, the kind of America's greatest evangelist. You have G.K. Chesterton, Probably C.S. Lewis, although his views on it are somewhat murky. On the other hand, as far as Calvinists go, you have guys like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to name a lot more in order to make a point. John Piper, Tim Keller, Mark Dever, Al Mohler, and uh, the, the Southern Seminary, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and, uh, and so the best place, if you really want, at the end of the day, if you really want to not get a caricature, if you want a caricature, just go Google Calvinism versus Arminianism. But if you want to actually know what, what really is being said by these two different camps, then I would encourage you to go and read some of those names uh, that I just uh, mentioned. And uh, although most evangelicals, most Christians in America and throughout the Western world, probably land more in the Arminian camp. If you look at it historically, most influential theologians and pastors have actually landed, uh, and missionaries have actually landed more in the camp of the uh, Calvinists. And so, as we begin, I want to 
help to remove a caricature. There's a caricature out there that says when we're talking about this that the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism is that Calvinists think that God chose us and Arminians, by the way, it's not Armenians, which is an ethnic group. It's also not Arminianists, which is just a made-up word by people who don't know the actual word. Uh, Arminians believe that we choose God. So that's a caricature, though, because both Calvinists and Arminians believe that God chose us and we chose God. The difference is which one's the cause and which one's the effect, which one's primary and which one is secondary. Did God choose us because we chose him, or do we choose him because he chose us? And the Calvinist position says that God's choosing of us is the cause, and our effect our choosing of him is the response. Does that make difference? Uh, uh, that makes sense there, the difference between uh, the two? So think about it, if you will, uh, like this. When it comes to asking the question, who is it that God saves, we have a few different options, all right? So who God saves, on one hand, just logically, these are the, all, all the options that are available. On one hand, you have the idea that God saves everyone. What do we call that idea? Universalism, all right? And, uh, and so it's a heresy, the idea that God saves everybody. No one in this room believes that God saves uh, everyone. You also could logically have the idea that God saves none, all right? That's pretty pessimistic. Nobody ever holds that. And then, obviously, this is where everybody lands, that God saves some. So all Orthodox Christians believe that God saves some people. The question is, on what basis? At the end of the day, what is the decisive motivating factor in who it is that is and is not saved? Is it our choice of God or is it God's choice of us? Because we know both of those things are true. There are tons of passages that says God chooses us, and every one of us from our personal experience can recall a time when we, quote-unquote, chose God. And so, the question is not which one of those two statements, God chose us or we chose God, is true. The question is which one's primary, which one's the cause And again, which one is the effect? And so as we'll see, I think that the overwhelming weight of biblical evidence is on the fact that it is God's choice of us, which is the cause, and our response to God's choosing of us is our choosing of Him. But first, let me just ask this question. Why does it matter? Like, why does this matter? Like, there are often times I've had this conversation with people and they've said, I just want to love Jesus. Why does it matter? We're talking about these things that are maybe too abstract, too ethereal. And so I kind of want to do what we did a few weeks ago where we talked about some of the Christological heresies and we began to kind of, we kind of pulled on that thread a little bit and saw, well, if you really begin to pull the thread and, uh, and you begin to explore why does it matter if Jesus really is fully human? Because without it, you lose the doctrine of creation, you lose incarnation, you lose the death of Christ, you lose the resurrection, and you begin to see you not only pulled one thread, you've unraveled the entire sweater. I want to do that a little bit with this as well. So for those who might be asking, what does it matter? This is too abstract, too academic, too intellectual, too ethereal, whatever it might be. Here's the reason uh, that it matters. If you open up to Romans 9... And if we have time, we'll spend some time working through the passage in a little bit. But for now, just looking at one verse. And as you do that, 
Let me give one answer to the question, why does it matter? And then we'll use Romans 9 to give a second answer to the question. The first reason, why does it matter, is because God has revealed it. Everything that God reveals matters. God doesn't reveal to us superfluous information. He doesn't reveal to us things that are not helpful for us. He's not one of those people, if you have people in your life, I have a a relative who if you ask her, um, hey, how long did it take you to get here? She will literally, her answer will take longer than it took her to actually get wherever she was going. She just gives you all this extra information. Well, well, then we stopped, and this is what I ordered, and this is what my daughter ordered, and this is blah, 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 blah. And it's all this just extraneous information that you don't need. God's not like that. God doesn't reveal to us things that we don't need. And so the first reason that this matters is because God's spoken about it. And as we'll see, he's actually said quite a bit about it. So we don't have the option or the right to, to look at God's Word and to pick and choose what's important. Everything that God says is important. The second reason, just looking at one particular text, Romans 9, verse 15. For he, that's God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. All right? So this is in the middle of, hopefully we'll get a chance to walk through this, in the middle of God's defense of the doctrine of election. Uh, it says this, and you can see that word there in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So in the middle of God defending the idea of election, he says this, and he quotes there from the Old Testament. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Does somebody know where that particular reference comes from in the Old Testament? Or maybe you have a cross-reference? Exodus 33. And what's happening in Exodus 33? Does anybody remember? Moses asks a question of God, or he makes a request of God. He says, show me what? Show me your glory, right? Now, you and I know that the chief end of our life, the reason that we exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? The reason that you and I exist is to bring glory to God, and somehow, in some way, When Moses says, show me your glory, this is God's response. My glory consists of this. And my freedom to have mercy on whom I have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, our understanding of God's glory is distorted if our understanding of this topic is distorted. And the better that we understand this topic, the better that we can understand God's glory. And the more that we understand God's glory, the more that we hunger for it and thirst for it and spend our lives uh, working uh, toward it and pursuing it and so forth. So let's uh, start with some fun. In light of this past week, this was uh, a very contentious week in the life of uh, America, and so I want to redeem the word election. That's my goal today. So election, and a definition from uh, Wayne Grudem, a really great systematic theologian, He wrote this, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Let me read that again. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. 
So we might consider election as having sort of two facets, if you will. There are two different branches of election. One is election unto uh, glory. One is election unto mercy. The other one is election unto wrath or justice. And, uh, and so we call the first one election unto glory. Typically, we use the word predestination for that, predestination. Biblically, the word predestination typically means election unto uh, glory. And then the theological word that's used for election unto condemnation is reprobation. We're not going to spend any time today talking about that because the Bible really doesn't focus on that. The Bible focuses on election as God's work towards those whom he has set his love upon and called unto himself. So let's start off and just kind of trace this idea of election throughout the Bible. So let's start in the Old Testament. What are some of the evidences of election in the Old Testament? And I think you will see this pattern developed if we read the Old Testament through a lens of looking for examples of God simply exercising mercy. God choosing some and not others. It begins all the way with God favoring Abel over Cain. But why? Why is it that he favors Abel over Cain? When I was growing up, I heard all kinds of theories, but mostly it kind of revolved around the idea that that Cain brought fruits and veggies and that Abel Abel, uh, brought meat and God is like really displeased with vegetarians or something like that, right? Right? That was like as deep as they got as to why, why it is. But the Bible doesn't, itself doesn't say. It just simply said he had regard for Abel and not for Cain. He chose Abel and he rejected Cain, even though both brought a sacrifice. So we see this idea of election, God choosing one and rejecting another. We also have God choosing Abraham. Why? Why does he choose Abraham? When we first meet him, He's a moon worshiper from Ur. That's who he is. There's nothing in Abraham in this stage of his life that would make him worthy, that would make him merit God's choice, and yet God simply chooses him. And then his character begins to be transformed as he interacts with God and experiences God's covenant and so forth. Or what about just Israel in general, God's choice of Israel? He says things like this in Amos 3.2, you only... You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You only, of all the families of the earth, you only have I known. You only have I loved. You only have I set my uh, electing uh, preference uh, upon. God chose Moses, even though we don't see any any evidences in his life at that time that he was actually uh, righteous. He's a murderer. He's fearful, he's timid, he's faithless, all of these sorts of things. The Moses that we tend to think of is a Moses that's been transformed, not the Moses that we first encounter in the text. Or David, David's just a shepherd boy. Why does he choose him and set him as king over his people? Then you get in the Gospels and, uh, and you read things like this. In Luke 4.25, Jesus says this, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman 
the Syrian. When, when Jesus says this, the people are enraged because he's speaking of God's mercy being extended to the Gentiles. But in choosing this one particular w- widow and one particular leper, God's passing over dozens and dozens and dozens of other widows, and dozens and dozens and dozens of other lepers, which is Jesus' point. Or the parable of the talents, where God gives more to some than He does to the others. Or the parable of the workers, if you remember that parable, where uh, they each work, and they each work a different amount of time. Some work 12 hours, some work for like one hour, and they each get the exact same amount of money. So God gives uh, justly, but He doesn't give equally. We have this sort of American fascination with uh, equality. We have sort of this idea that, uh, that God's justice means that He gives everybody absolutely equal opportunities, but all of us know from our own experiences that that's utterly false, that that's not true at all, that everyone in this room was born into a certain degree of privilege and a certain degree of access to the gospel that is not true of millions of other people in the world. God gives justly, but it doesn't necessarily give equally. John chapter 6, if you want to flip over there, we'll look at a couple of passages. A lot of times people think that uh, this talk of election or predestination or whatever is just something that Paul uh, introduced into the Scriptures. So we've already seen the Old Testament kind of sets the stage for it. Uh, but also here, uh, Jesus gives some of the most, uh, some of the most profound reflections upon this idea that we see in all the Scriptures. John 6, verse uh, 37, he says, all, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Think about the implications of that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It is really, really, really impossible to read that verse through a lens that says, God the Father gives equally every single person to His Son. What He's just said there is, everyone that the Father has given will come. And everyone who comes will never be cast out. Look in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you have no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then you have uh, match that back up with 37. But all that the Father does give will come, and whoever does come I will never cast out. This is the heart of what Calvinism says. So all of the other sort of ideas that you might have, the caricatures of it, if you've ever Googled it or something like that, this is the heart of it, what Jesus is saying here, that no one will come to the Father apart from uh, being called by Christ. You have a number of times where Jesus is going to mention this group of people that are called the elect, Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
Matthew 24, 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Luke 18, 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So there's this category in Jesus' mind of this group of people that are known as the elect, the chosen. You have the election in the book of Acts. You have the example of Paul himself. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of other Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots and so forth uh, who were uh, persecuting uh, the church, and yet it is Paul who was confronted personally uh, by the Lord. Acts 2.47, it says, The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if you ask Luke, the author of, uh, of the book of Acts, if you ask him, at the end of the day, how are people being saved? It's the Lord is adding to their number. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So who believes? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. In other words, not everybody is appointed to eternal life. Everybody who's appointed believed. There is this appointment and then there's belief. God's choice and then our choice. Remember, it's not a question of either or. It's a question of which one is the cause, which one is the effect. Throughout the epistles, we see this idea of election. First Thessalonians chapter 1 Verses 4 through 5, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do we know? How do we know that God has chosen you? Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power. In other words, because you received it. We know that you're chosen by God because you choose him. That is the response. The response is our choice, and the cause is God's choice of us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. But we ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, I'm going to give a blessing to God. I'm going to show gratitude to God. Because he chose you. Because he saved you. Second, that's, uh, Second Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So again, Paul has this category of this group of people called the elect. Talks about it again in Titus 1.1, Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Peter talks about this also, 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, you will never fall. So Paul, Peter, Jesus, Old Testament, New Testament, you have this idea of election. And we could multiply, we could throw out all of these texts, and I could fill your sheet with another And then throw that out and fill your sheet with another. On and on and on it goes. This is not something, although it would be just as authoritative if it was just one verse in one particular place because of our doctrine of Scripture. It doesn't matter if it's revealed 500 times or one times. But this is something that screams at us in the Scriptures. It's not just this gentle little whisper 
by the Lord. It's something that screams at us. And I think the reason is, again, because this is so such a part of how God manifests his glory. So what I want to do is go to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of interact with the text for a minute. Maybe with someone next to you. Hopefully you're sitting close enough to someone that you could just lean over and talk with them for a second. If not, if you wanted to scoot over, that might be helpful. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses uh, 3 through 14. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read it, and then after I read it, I want to just take uh, about two minutes or so, and I want you to do the work of a journalist, all right? So the work of a journalist, you're just asking questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how, those kinds of things. I just want to pepper... The question, especially as it relates to election. Election is the what. So who? Who does election? Why do they do election? For whom do they elect? And, uh, and so forth. So let me read verses 3 through 14, and then you take a moment, uh, ask those questions, and, uh, and then we'll uh, continue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So take just a minute or two <coughs> and answer these questions. What's the verb there? What are the verbs that are talked about as it relates to this topic that we're talking about today? And then who is the subject of the verb? That is, who's the one who does the action of the verb? And what's the object of the verb? Who's the object of the verb? Who's the one who receives the action? And then what's the motivation uh, for that, and then we'll come back in uh, in just a minute or two. Okay, you've had a start, so let's work through it uh, together. What are the the two different verbs here that are related ideas that uh, that Paul uses? We all remember what a verb is. When you when you <laughs> when you take when you take biblical Greek, you literally have to read a book, at least at DTS, that is uh, uh, like. English grammar for dummies, because everybody forgets all of these little terms, and so if we speak it, we don't actually remember it, and so you remember verb, a verb is action word, so what are the two verbs that are related here? Chose and predestined, all right? What's the subject of those verbs? The subject's the one who does the action of the verb. God, or he, speaking of God, so God, God does what? God, verb, predestines, or God chooses. What's the object of the verb? The one who receives the verb. Us. God chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. Everybody see that in there? 
What's his motivation? His, the praise of his glory, there's more. We should be holy and blameless, there's more. Yeah, tonight all things. Yeah, it's kind attention, in love. Do you just see that? Right? So we started off by talking about these are scary words because they feel like scary words. They really should be really comforting words. If we're really reading the Bible through a God-centered lens, these should actually be the most comforting words that we could read. The idea that God chooses shouldn't be scary. That should be comforting because it's an, an evidence, an example, a demonstration of God's great love for us. And so this is a part of how it is that we're to read the Bible, just by peppering the, 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 the text with question after question after question after question. Next semester, um, if you want to call it a semester, next year, we're going to spend 25 weeks just talking about a doctrine of Scripture, and we're going to do things like this together as a group and just kind of relearn observation, interpretation, application, Bible study methods, uh, and so forth. And so that's Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, so what I want to do is to kind of look at what's the Arminian perspective of this? That is the other viewpoint. How do they think that election works? So obviously it's God chooses us, we choose God, they reverse those. They think that God chooses us on the basis of our choice of Him, and they do so with an interesting word. It's in Romans chapter 8, if you want to look over there real quick. Romans chapter 8, everybody, whenever they first get saved, memorizes Romans 8, 28. Anybody want to shout that out? No one wants to prove that they actually memorized it, got it on a coffee cup and so forth. <laughs> That's great. Read 28. Yeah, so we love that verse, right? Let's keep on. What's, uh, what about 29? Yeah, so you have this word there for new. That's going to be the tricky word. That's what Arminians are going to latch on to. And I don't use that as a derogatory term, like those Arminians or something like that. It's just a helpful way to classify the different way of thinking. But that is the word that they're going to latch on to. And what they do with that word is they say what God's foreknowledge is, is God's ability to know the future. That's for is a prefix that means before. And knowledge, so it makes sense. That's what foreknowledge is. God's looking into the future. So he puts on his uh, big puffy vest and gets into his DeLorean and he goes in the future and he sees what's happening there and he comes back and he says, that person's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose them. And so before the foundation of the world, I choose Carol Brower or I choose Steve Williams or whoever it is. I choose them because I know that in time they were going to choose uh, me. The problem is that's not actually what that word means in its context, in its biblical context, in its historical context, the word foreknowledge doesn't just mean ability to know the future. It is more related to the concept of foreordination, foreplanning, that God plans the future. He doesn't just know the future. He ordains the future and orchestrates uh, the future. And so, uh, the, the, whenever we look at this, whenever we see over and over and over as the word foreknowledge is used, it, it's not referencing God's knowledge of future events. It's always used of God's knowledge of people. God doesn't just know things about you if you're the elect. He doesn't just know what you're going to do. He knows you. So there's a very specific meaning of the word knowledge 
there. That's why that he can say things like he does in Amos about Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Does that mean that God doesn't know the non-Israelites? Does that mean that he doesn't know about them? He doesn't know that Gentiles exist? Of course not. He knows everything. But he doesn't set his love on the other nations the way that he does Israel, at least in the Old Covenant. There is a, a distinct meaning of the word know in Scripture. So if I say this, if I say Abraham knew Sarah, you probably understand there is a subtext there. There's a nuance there, and it's used in its biblical sense. It doesn't mean Abraham knows Sarah's favorite color, or Abraham knows Sarah's birthday, or something like that. We, we know that it means he knew her intimately. And although that, that idea of sexuality is not in the way that God knows us, it's still that intimate. He knows people, not just about the decisions that they're going to make. And so, the first reason that this view of what foreknowledge is and how election works is wrong is because that's not the, word, the, the way the word functions within the Bible. That's not what foreknowledge means. But it also, it's going to seriously, seriously distort the biblical picture of man in his depravity. So as we talk about depravity, there's a, there's a phrase that's used oftentimes to refer to man's depravity, and that is uh, that we are totally depraved. You might have heard that before. Total depravity. And uh, when we say that, we mean total in five different senses. Our depravity, you and I, in our flesh, before Christ, apart from Christ, in Adam, we are depraved in five different ways. The first one is that we're depraved totally in the sense that this depravity affects every human. So the totality of the human populace, Christ excluded, is depraved. That's one sense in which you might say our depravity is total. Another sense, in our rebellion, absolutely everything we do is sin. The Bible says that whatever does not come from faith is sin. By its very de- definition, if something is not done with the motivation of faith and a desire, a pursuit of the glory of God, it is sin. So in our rebellion, everything we do is sin. Another sense in which our depravity is total is that this depravity affects every aspect of us, our heart, our mind, our soul, our will. There's not some area of you, there's not some area of Jeff that's good Jeff apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, every part of Jeff is affected by sin. A fourth sense, we are totally unable to do spiritual good. Any good that we do is actually polluted. Our righteous deeds are like filthy garments apart from Christ. So you help the little old lady cross the street, but the real reason that you did it is you're motivated by pride or fear of man or something like that. You're not ultimately motivated by a love for God and His glory. And then lastly, we're totally deserving of wrath. That's what we mean by total depravity. So consider now this, the depiction of man as you reflect upon uh, the biblical portrait of us in our sin. The Bible says we have darkened minds. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And I put some other passages there, but we won't, for the sake of time, go through all of them. So we have darkened minds, we have darkened and deceitful hearts. Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Next, our senses were blind and deaf to spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In our affections, we love sin and hate God, John 3, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. That passage is particularly powerful if you reflect upon the way that John uses the imagery of light and darkness. This is the book, remember, where Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. When John says the light has come into the world, he doesn't mean this thing that's shining down from the ceiling. He means Jesus Christ. What the Bible has just said is you hate, you hate Jesus. We hate the light. We love the darkness. In our wills, we're enslaved to sin. This is why it's, it's unhelpful to think of us as having a free will, although there's a sense in which that's true. There's another sense in which that is a very, very confusing statement because the Bible says we're enslaved to sin. You're either enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to Christ, one or the other, always. There's never a point in which you're enslaved to yourself. There's never a point in which you're truly autonomous. You're truly outside of the dominion of one of those two things. John uh, 8.34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Titus 3 speaks about us being slaves to various passions. We're hostile toward God, Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And then to add insult to injury, we're dead. Our spiritual condition is absolute death. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So consider all of that put together. You have a darkened mind. You have a darkened and deceitful heart. You're blind. You're deaf. You love sin. You hate God. You're enslaved to sin. You're hostile toward God, and you're dead. So we have this picture of Jesus, and he stands up, and he says things like, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we rejoice in that. Amen. That's a great thing for us to celebrate. But what we don't recognize is that in our sin, we hear that, and we think, He's tricking me. And we think, He's out to get me. But really, we don't even hear them because we're deaf. And even if we wanted to, which we don't, we can't move toward them because we're dead. You see this biblical depiction uh, over and over and over and over and over again of us in our depravity. And so as a result of who we naturally are, that is who we are in our very nature, in our association with Adam, who we are in our sin, we're absolutely unable and unwilling to respond to him positively. We respond to him all right. We respond to him negatively. We respond to him in rebellion and rejection. We're absolutely unable and unwilling to choose him unless he first 
exerts a gracious influence upon us unless he first chooses us. This is why, again, this is why it's wrong to say God simply looks in the future and sees who will choose him because apart from him choosing us, we won't choose him because we hate him. That's what the flesh is. It's enmity toward God. So what God does is he graciously causes the elect to be born again. He gives us a new heart. This is the language, even there of John 3, we read about us hating the light and loving the darkness. And the context there of John chapter 3, he's speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. If you're born again, then you will see the kingdom, and then you'll see the king, and you won't find Jesus to be unlovely. You'll find him to be lovely. You won't find him to be distasteful. You'll find him to be good and glorious. Because God chooses us, He gives us a new heart, a new spirit. That new heart, that new spirit then inclines towards God, and as a result, we choose Him. But it's important we see, again, the cause and the effect there, that God's choice of us is what enables us to freely and lovingly choose Him. Let's close our time just looking briefly at Romans chapter 8 and 9. I won't have a whole lot of time to walk through this, but this is a really, really important passage for us to understand how this all works and to really build as firm a foundation as we possibly can in regards to the, uh, the fact that this is the biblical picture. In Romans 8 and uh, 9, there is uh, a verse there that's often looked over, but I want you to consider it. Romans 9, verse 6. Paul says this, but it's not as though the Word of God has failed, but it's not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, why does he say that? He's just said that because, if you read the context, he has just said something. He's just said that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? That's the end of Romans chapter 8. You also have that on a t-shirt or coffee mug or whatever it might be. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? If you track it back, it's because of this promise that we read earlier in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, all things work together for good means all things are working together for glory. God is taking everybody that he uh, foreknows and he's predestining. And everybody he predestines, he calls. And everybody he calls, he justifies. And everybody he justifies, he glorifies. This is what's called the golden chain of salvation. There's no missing links. There's nobody that doesn't make it from one step to the next. There's nobody that doesn't make it from round one to round two or whatever it might be. And so there's this golden chain of salvation. And, uh, and yet... Paul reflects upon his own experience and the experience of his countrymen and says, yeah, but in the Old Testament, there were a people that were called the elect, and yet they're not experiencing these blessings. So has God's Word failed? Because if all of my hope rests upon the fact that I am predestined, and yet there are people who were elect or predestined in the Old Testament 
and God's promises to them weren't confirmed, then how can I have any assurance that God's promises to me are going to be confirmed? That's the question that's motivating him to write this uh, passage. Verse 6, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And his reasoning is, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God made a promise not to an ethnic people. God's promises are not based on ethnicity. God's promises are made on the basis of election. All of his promises are not made to every single Israelite. We see that in the desert where a number of them are judged, the Achan's rebellion and so forth, where the earth swallows him. that, uh, That Israel's history is littered with people that we would not in any sense consider to be faithful believers in God and in His kingdom. And so, it's not as though the Word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because you are one of Jacob's descendants doesn't mean that you're part of this reality that's called spiritual Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, he's arguing Abraham had a couple of kids. What was the first one's name? Ishmael, right? And is Ishmael part of the, uh, the chosen line? No, right? So simply being descended from Abraham doesn't mean that you are a recipient of God's promises because God's promises are through Isaac. But now you might say, yeah, but that's because they had different moms and it was a different stage of life and so forth. There's like 14 years between the two. And so he gives this other example here. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. All right, so Isaac and Rebekah, they have how many kids? Anybody remember? Two, all right? And what's distinctive about them? They're twins, right? Jacob and Esau. So maybe if you were thinking, well, the reason that he chose Isaac and not Ishmael is because they're different mothers, or because they were born at different times, that doesn't apply in the case of twins. So he goes down another level and shows this example. So why did he choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, if you go through and read the Bible, there are actually a lot of things in there, as you read Genesis, where it might seem like Esau is actually more faithful at times than Jacob. Jacob tends to be this guy who's a deceiver, who's a trickster, who's faithless, who's fearful, and so forth, and on and on you could go. But the reason that one was chosen, according to verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, but here's the reason, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. This is, this is what we naturally want to think. The reason that God chose Jacob and not Esau is because Jacob was better. But he just said, that's not the reason. Jacob's not better. Jacob is just as evil and wicked and sinful as, uh, as Esau was. Remember, we're all totally depraved. If God simply goes around looking for the people who are not depraved... He doesn't find anybody. He doesn't save anybody. None are saved. That's not the reason. 
Though, were, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. In my previous church, I, I had a conversation with a guy over email over the span of a few months. He was a guy who had come and visited a number of times, uh, and he just had some theological questions, and so he wanted to talk. And so we spent uh, a number of months just kind of dialoguing back and forth. And uh, over time, the conversation kind of gravitated towards this, this idea of election. And he really, really did not like it. And, uh, and so uh, towards the end of our conversation, he responded to one of my uh, emails, and he said, if, if what you're saying is correct, then God's really unjust. And... He doesn't have any right to hold people responsible, right? And so I told him, in, in all love, will you go and you read the last half of Romans chapter 9? Because what Paul says is you will object to what he's just said with two objections. One, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the second one, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will. We don't have time to work through both of those things except to say the fact that the objections exist should be helpful for us in understanding what it is that Paul is saying. If you've understood Paul correctly, then you should have these objections initially. He answers the objections. Your heart ultimately finds a place to rest in this, but your initial response to hearing, did he just say what I think he said? Should be, Okay, well, isn't that unjust? Isn't it unjust? He just simply chooses Jacob and not Esau, not because of anything that they had done before they were even born? That needs to seem unjust. It doesn't seem the Arminian perspective is God looked into the future. He saw Jacob was going to choose him. Jacob was going to be a good guy, and so he chose Jacob and rejected Esau because Esau was not. Does that seem unfair? No, that doesn't seem unfair at all. Paul is saying at least on the surface, this has to seem unfair. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And so, I want to uh, encourage you as we conclude, and then I'll have Zachary come up and, uh, and help clarify everything I muddied up. But uh, I want to encourage you, two things that I want to accomplish uh, this morning. First is just to expose us to this idea. For some of you, this is old hat. For some of you, you're like, yes and amen. Some of you are like, this is blasphemy. Uh, some of you are like, oh, I'll hear these things again. I'll consider and so forth. I really want to speak to those who are in that camp of just wrestling through this. And I want to encourage you just to take your time and, uh, and to explore what the Bible says on the topic. Again, it would be authoritative if it was just one passage, but it's not. It's not two, it's not three, it's not four, it's not five. It's over and over and over and over again. And then the second thing is, I want you to see that this is good. This is not merely true, it's also good. Those of us who have wrestled through it and found a place to rest in it have found this is actually very, very, very freeing, very very enlightening for us to be able to rest in God's glory and goodness to us. But that might take a time. My former pastor, he said for seven years he wrestled with this topic. 
seven years. He exaggerates, so it's probably like three. But for seven years, he wrestled with this. He said the first three to four years were just with, is this really what the Bible says? And it took him three to four years to wrestle with, yeah, that actually is. You know what the last three to four years was? How in the world is this good then? How in the world can God be good if this is the picture of God? And so I want to encourage you, whether, wherever you are in that seven-year process, hopefully it's not seven years for you literally, but wherever you are in that process, th- to take your time. We'd love to have some conversations with you. I'd be more than happy to get you resources or sit down over coffee or whatever it might be. Any of our guys, any of our elders would uh, as well. And so let me just give a quick, quick summary, and then Zach will come up. A summary. God is absolutely good and loving. That's where if if anything I've said today makes you question that, you haven't heard me correctly. God is absolutely good and loving. Second, all mankind is worthy of wrath and deserving of death. This is really, this is one of those conversations that's really going to test. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that all mankind is worthy of God's wrath and deserving of death. In other words, if God exercises mercy, it is mercy. It's unmerited. Nobody gets worse than they deserve. Nobody in the history of the world except for Jesus. Jesus is the only historical figure in the history of the world who ever got worse than what he actually deserved. Third, that he should save any at all is merciful and gracious. Fourth, that those who trust Christ do so because the Spirit has opened their eyes and hearts to do so. Fifth, those who do not trust Christ are unable to do so, but are morally responsible for their inability. This is probably one of the hardest things to accept. That even though we are morally unable, we are unable to incline ourselves toward God, that somehow in God's economy, in God's mind, there is a way in which you are responsible for that. You should do something even if you won't do something. And then lastly, that all of these are true and none should be used to the neglect of the other.